Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Oak City. Thanks for tuning in with us this morning. We're glad that uh, you could be here. I mentioned in a video we put out on Thursday that we had a little coronavirus scare in our house. All of our tests came back negative. Thanks for your prayers and thoughts and concerns. We appreciate that. We still have locked my son, whose girlfriend had tested positive in his room for the next week, just to make sure. So pray for him and for us. This week, I'm going to go through a passage, and it's a little bit of an addendum to our last series. So our last series was about uh, loving your neighbor well, and this, and then this, I just started thinking about what's going on in our culture and loving your neighbor. And this is going to be about loving the neighbor that you really don't want to love. This is going to be hard, uh, but I think we need it. And so here is the passage that I'm going to be preaching out of this morning. It's Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 43. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I have talked to, you know, so many of you in the past few weeks and months about all that's going on right now. And I know a lot of you, like me, feel a little bit like you're walking a tightrope or maybe walking through a minefield, uh, culturally a minefield, theologically a minefield, relationally a minefield. And that can be with COVID, about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, or should we reopen church, or should we reopen grocery store? I mean, we never close those, but bars or restaurants, or, you know, is it time yet, or should we wait? Um, With all that's going on with the racial tension in our culture right now, can I talk to you about it? Or am I asking you to relive trauma you know, which is not fair to ask you to do and to educate me on something that I should figure out for myself. And does it make, what does it look like for me to be a part of the solution instead of the problem without sitting on my hands or overstepping my bounds? Um, Those things are tightropes, you know, or the Supreme Court thing that came out this week or the election that's upcoming. I read uh, someone this week who is not given to hyperbole, you know, but said, they feel like we are living in the most polarized times that we have ever lived in. And I would agree with it. And it's made worse by the fact that we are not face-to-face right now, but we're isolated from each other. And so we're communicating via a screen like this or worse, via a keyboard, via a keyboard. And it kicks those dynamics up a notch. And sometimes you've stepped on a mine and you don't even know you've stepped on a mine until much later. And the mask thing, I felt like for maybe a few months now, that this is representative of where our culture is right now. And then this week it came up again. So we're in staff meeting and we're talking about masks. And and one person says, you know, I pretty much wear a mask to the grocery store because I feel judged if I don't have a mask on. And another person says, you know, I wear a mask all the time and I feel judged when I do have a mask on. And there's only three people in our staff meetings most weeks. You know what I mean? So you can guess who said what. It's just, that's where it is right now is you don't, 
You just don't know. And the extent to which you're thinking right now, well, that's stupid, you shouldn't wear a mask, or you're stupid if you don't wear a mask, is the degree to which you really need to hear this message. And we all do because it's how we all feel that whoever disagrees with us, it's the temptation is to feel like whoever disagrees with me right now is a complete idiot. And I feel like that's normally a temptation, but that's a temptation on steroids in the time that we're going through right now. And some of it's driven by personality type, but it's so much more. It's so much more, and particularly right now. On top of that, I'm, I'm tired. I bet you're tired, you know? I mean, for us this week, um, we had this coronavirus scare in our house. Uh, we, we had, someone got shot in our neighborhood this week, and so we're trying to figure that out. The Supreme Court ruling, which, I'm not, don't read too much into this, I just think, um, I just think it's gonna have significant impacts for Christians for years to come. And so many other things that, you know, finances and you're all locked in the house to get, we're tired, we're tired. And that exacerbates the problem because when you're tired, you have less patience for the people around you and less time to think deeply on issues and you're more likely just to give in to your frustration and let someone have it either out loud or just in your own head or over social media or in some form of preaching to the choir when you're around people that agree with you and you collectively throw a bunch of other people under the bus. And so that is why I'm preaching this passage because it's about loving your neighbors who are the hardest to love and I feel like we need it right now and we need it badly. So I'm gonna go through three questions. Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? Uh, how does God love your enemy? Which is to ask, how does God love you? And then what does that mean about how we should love the people around us? And so I'll start with, who is your enemy? Again, this is from, from the passage in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, for the record, hate your enemy is not in anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, is clarifying a bunch of things in the Old Testament law. So there's passages we're maybe more familiar with. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, don't look upon a woman with lust in your heart. You've heard it said, don't murder anybody. But I'm telling if you, if you're, if you're angry with them, that's the same as murder. So here he says this, and you could think, well, where in the Old Testament does it say hate your enemy? It doesn't. But they have heard that said someplace because someone has interpreted it as they've justified their hatred towards their enemy and, and taught that to the people that Jesus is talking to. And he says, he's saying no. And so that's another question with this. Do you think, do you think it's okay to hate your enemy? Do you think it's okay to hate your enemy? Because Jesus doesn't think it's okay. I will go back to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we've been talking through um, the past the past month now. And so the Good Samaritan is um, a guy's going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's on this dangerous road and he gets robbed and um, beaten and stripped and left for dead. And a priest passes by him and doesn't do anything. And a Levite passes by him and doesn't do anything. And a Samaritan passes by him and the Samaritan cares for all his needs and goes above and beyond. The great irony of that story being called the Good Samaritan is because for the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, the Samaritans were public enemy number one. They were like the A number one enemy, the ultimate bad guys in the Jewish story. And Jesus lifts that guy up as the hero of the story. Jesus is poking the bear when he does that. Um, I've mentioned this before, that there are sayings 
in, amongst Jewish Israelites in that day. Like, don't help a, a Samaritan person in childbirth because we wouldn't want to bring another one of them into the world. Like, it doesn't get more racist than that. Um, I heard another uh, pastor in town preaching this passage uh, last Sunday. I was, I was watching him, and um, he said that they would, when they left Samaria and went back into Israel, they would shake the dust off of their feet because they, wouldn't, they didn't want to get Samaritan dust in, in Israel. That's completely obnoxious, you know. Uh, at the end of this um, story, the, the guy that Jesus is talking to, this lawyer, the, the expert in the Jewish law, when Jesus says, well, who is his neighbor? Uh, he doesn't say the Samaritan in the story. He says the one who showed him mercy because he can't even get himself to say that the Samaritan, the enemy, could be the good guy. And it, a, a few passages earlier than this in uh, the Gospel of Luke, James and John are asking Jesus if they can call down fire on a Samaritan village because they wouldn't let Jesus stay overnight. They hated them. They hated them. And they completely justified their hatred. And Jesus is clearly speaking into that and saying, that's not the way of Jesus. You can't hate your enemy. Have you justified your hatred of somebody in this time? Have you justified your hatred of somebody? How much do you have to disagree with somebody before they qualify for you as an enemy? What makes somebody an enemy? You know, we live in highly, highly politicized culture and highly politicized times. So if you are politically, you lean left, you're more liberal politically, or the people that are on the right, they lean right, your enemies, or vice versa, if you lean right politically, or the people on your left, your enemies. Because if that's the case, I've got news for you. You go to church with your enemy because you guys are all over the place. And I know it. I um, I put up in, in church, this is just a, a challenge. You know, I put a podcast up in the weekly. It was my, my uh, link in the weekly a few weeks ago. And it was an interview with Tim Keller that another pastor had done with him. And part of the reason I put it up is because at the end of the podcast, and the interview is a little over an hour, he talks about some of the biggest challenges the church is facing right now. And he says he thinks this is the biggest challenge, that there are four hot-button cultural issues that are politically divided, but biblically, like, clear. So this is what he says. Let me go through this. The Bible says, and so I'm going to go through these and just be clear. These are not, these are not the big issue. The gospel is the big issue. Um, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the big issue. So we talk about these issues, but we're not going to talk about every week. There are implications of, we're trying to talk about Jesus and the gospel every week, and these are implications of the gospel, okay? And so the, he says, the Bible says we should be concerned for the poor because God is concerned for the poor, and that is throughout the whole Bible. The tithe in the Old Testament, the portion of it went to the storehouses to feed the poor in the city. He, um, it was part of the Old Testament law that the farmers had to leave the edge, the, the, the produce on the edges of their fields so the poor could come and glean it. It was written into the law. Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done it for me because he's concerned about the poor. Paul in um, Corinthians, he's talking about an offering with the, the churches in Greece that he's taking for the churches in Judea because they're experiencing poverty and says your abundance is going to cover their poverty and that's going to, you know, that's going to, what comes around goes around with that. And that's how the kingdom of God works. So God is concerned about the poor. The Bible says that we should be concerned for racial justice. And this is throughout the Bible. Paul talks about in Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility that has been torn down. Here, Jesus is clearly getting at that with the Jews and their, their biggest enemy, the Samaritans, and seeking reconciliation. 
Um, God, probably the most quoted verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And the world is the ethnos. It's the nations. It's the nations. It's everyone. In Revelation, um, John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, worshiping the Lord. And that's what heaven is going to be like. And so we should be for racial justice. It should be a priority for the church. We should advocate for the unborn. The Bible says we should advocate for the unborn. I preached on this in January. Honestly, one of my bigger regrets as a pastor, um, you know, in our time as Oak City Church is not talking about this more because the unborn need an advocate because uh, they can't speak for themselves. And we were woven together in our mother's womb. And you can go back and listen to that sermon if you're curious about that. It's in January. And the Bible says that we should save sex for marriage between a man and a woman. And we, we talk about this when it comes up in Scripture. We talk about it in the new members class. If you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but God created a male and female and said a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And there's all sorts of more stuff in that. But the, the Bible says those things are priorities for the church. Uh, none of those will be news to you if you've been to Oak City Church for a minute. But again, we don't make them the main thing because Jesus is the main thing, but we believe these things matter to Jesus. Um, and those things aren't primarily political issues uh, for a Christian. They're primarily biblical issues for a Christian, and they're secondarily political issues. But politically, two of them are priorities for the political left in our culture, and two of them are priorities for the political right in our culture. And that's a challenge for the church because you can be totally biblical and sitting next to people that completely disagree with you politically. And there probably should be okay, you know, but it's a challenge for us. It means you can be sitting next to somebody that you could consider your enemy depending on where you draw that line. Now, I wish we could be both, you know, and I think we could be both. Uh, I, it, there's a real simple way for me to look at this and that conservatives want to conserve what's good about culture and liberals want to liberate us from things that are bad about culture and we should want to conserve the things that are good and liberate us from the things that are bad. One would think that we could do both and maybe we could if we saw them first as biblical issues and second as political issues. And if we didn't find our identity in our politics or whether or not our guy won or woman won or lost an election, and if we trusted God more than our politicians to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, hold those four biblical priorities and you will have enemies. If you want some enemies, put those four things on your Facebook feed or Twitter or whatever you do right now, and you'll have some enemies. I probably made some enemies just talking about them, you know? That's just where it is. Who, who do you think, what does it take for somebody to be, what does it take for somebody to be your enemy? You know, I, I look at this passage and coming at it a little bit different way. Um, there's a funny thing I noticed about it in that Jesus kind of throws the tax collectors and the Gentiles under the bus, you know, like you can have enemies, you just can't hate them. Um, and in some ways that's fair. Uh, the word, the word for enemy, the Greek word for enemy is a word that's Ekthros, ekthros. You can't even say that without sounding angry. You know, it's like the people who make you angry. It comes from ektho, which is to hate. And so another way of asking that question is, who do you hate? Who do you hate? Who do you wish wasn't around? Whose nonsense do you wish you didn't have to deal with? And it's a way of saying, don't hate the one that you hate. Love the one that you hate. 
And man, I think we need this because we're in a time where it's easy to love, to hate. It's easy to be filled with a righteous indignation that we can justify by a quick glance at our Facebook feed, you know? And that is a dangerous place for a Jesus follower to be. Can you love the one that you are so tempted to hate? It's in this passage explicitly, it's in the Good Samaritan passage implicitly. Can you love the one you're so tempted to hate? Can you be angry at injustice, but you know, you, can't, you can be angry there, but you can't stay angry at unjust people. Um, what hate have you justified in your heart? Because Jesus is calling you to repent of that. What hate have you justified in your heart? Okay, so who's your enemy? How does God love your enemy? How does God love your enemy? And really, another way of asking this question is how does God love you? Um, because we were all God's enemies. So this is, again, from the passage in Matthew 5. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And that can be difficult, but it seems like God is blessing the enemy with sunshine and rain. And so even though they're idiots, I have to treat them well. But the hard truth is that we were all enemies of God. But the clear biblical truth is that we were all enemies of God. And Colossians 1, And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind. And the word hostile is ekthros. You are enemies in mind to God, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he can present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, from Romans 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How does God treat his enemies? Well, take a look in the mirror, if you call yourself a Christian, and ask how God has treated you and still treats you, because that's how God treats his enemies. The, the whole thing is hard. You know, I mean, for, for a lot of us, some of us, like we were full on, we felt like enemies of of the Lord, and then we turned, you know? But a lot of us didn't feel like enemies. You know, I can remember being a kid and thinking, well, I like God, and like, that seems like a good thing to do, and I want God to like me. And so when I finally figured out the gospel and someone explained it to me, I was like, that's great news, you know? Now, there was a time in my life where I think I was really living as an enemy, you know? Um, but I think in our culture, like common thing is to feel like I'm doing my best and God can't be upset with me when I'm upset with me when I'm doing my best. And I think that's denying a bit of reality. And it's hard because we may not notice it, but pay attention for a few minutes and you will, you know, um, that the things we think and the things we say and the things we do are, are in many ways opposed to the things that God would have us think and would have us say and would have us do. And we think, well, I can't help it, so it's not my fault, but that's the point, that we can't help it. If we could help it, then we wouldn't need Christ. Uh, the reality is that our thoughts, words, and deeds have fantastic consequences, and that our best isn't good enough, because if we're all doing our best, then apparently this is our best. And our best stinks right now, doesn't it? Um, and God's not going to settle for it. I started, I mentioned this book in the weekly this week. Um, it's called Confronting Christianity. Uh, excellent book so far. Uh, but she talks about this, and um, she, oh man, did I lose my page? She talks about um, 
just what goes on inside of it. So she quotes Andy Crouch, who was the editor of Christianity Today um, for a few years, and he says this. He was talking about really celebrity pastors, pastors of these mega churches that have um, experienced moral failure, and he said we should have expected that. He said, if you knew the full condition of my heart, if you knew my fantasies and grievances, my anxieties and my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and to others. I cannot be entrusted with power by myself, certainly not with celebrity, and neither can you. And I believe that. And if you look within, you'll know that's true. Um, the author continues, it's been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. <laughs> Run that test between yourself, on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of everyone you spend time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die, my children would be crushed, my friends would leave. My thoughts aren't all bad, many are good and kind and true, but like a bag of flour infested with maggots, no part of me is pure. She quotes Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, lying on rotting straw in a Soviet gulag, coming to this revelation, saying, gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. We all have to come to grips with that reality. If we don't understand how the Bible calls us enemies of God, we're being way too generous with ourselves, and we're vastly undervaluing the grace of God to us. When you disobey God in word, thought, or deed, by things done or left undone, you're building your own kingdom instead of his. You're seeking your glory instead of his. You're declaring that you're smarter than him and better than him, and some of his ideas are really stupid, and you're in essence telling him to leave you alone. That's what we do when we ignore him and continue in our sin. She goes on to talk about heaven and and just, you know, some of our false notions of heaven and heaven is really relationship with him. And it only makes sense to be in relationship with him when we really want his things to be the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, and God's going to have to change that for us to fit. And the extent to which he's going to have to change you and me, like that's the extent to which we were or maybe are enemies of his. I mean, theologically, I know this. I was an enemy of Christ, and I'm not an enemy of Christ now because I'm in Christ. Because when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But practically, in thought, word, and deed, I spend parts of each day living and walking as an enemy of Christ, opposed to his will. How does God love his enemies? Graciously. And we should be super thankful for that. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to become to eternal life. He sent his son to take the cup of wrath due his enemies. If we don't understand the need to love our enemies, we don't really understand the gospel. We don't really understand the gospel. Is your posture towards those around you full of that type of grace and humility? Are you extending the grace to them that was extended to you? And I don't think he lets us off this hook. I mean, the last line of that passage is, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And obviously we can't do that without the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that's possible because of what Christ has done for us. But that's the bar that he set for us. Now, last question, then how should we love others? And again, from this passage in Matthew 5, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
do not even the Gentiles do the same. You are called to be different if you are a follower of Christ. I'm going to bring in another passage. This is from Romans chapter 12. Uh, Paul says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to sow hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, or beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why is it? Why, why do we resist this? Even as I read it, even as we know it's true, why do we resist in any way giving the benefit of the doubt to the people with whom we strenuously disagree that at least ideologically are, are enemies? I've been struggling all week with this. Lord, how do, how do I love my enemy without just turning into a, a wimp or, or giving up and not fully pursuing a just cause? We crave justice. We should crave justice. God is the author of justice. You know, just to, just to get real about it, you are on different sides of some of this stuff. I read your social media stuff. I talk to you. Some of you think that the coronavirus stuff is a ploy to give the government more control. And so you want justice because you don't think the government should have more control. Others of you think that people are negligent or ignorant for not wearing a mask everywhere and they're jeopardizing everyone else's health. And you want justice because you don't want some people to jeopardize the health of other people. We crave justice for George Floyd and his family and all the families that have suffered in similar ways. We should want justice. We shouldn't diminish our desire for justice. God is a God throughout the Bible of justice, and nowhere do we see that more than at the cross. But that doesn't give us license to love or to hate our enemies. I was thinking about this um, late in my preparation, and there was a guy years ago, we, uh, we were involved early as a church in this thing called Invisible Children, and it was these kids in northern Uganda that were getting abducted um, as children into an army, and um, Joseph Coney was the guy's name, and so they were out in the bush, and the first thing they'd have them do is kill somebody that they came with, so they couldn't go back to their village, because if they went back to the village, they'd killed somebody from the village, and just manipulated these kids, and the, the guy that we were working with was a guy named George Pawang Jalobo, and I remember, I'll never forget this, he said, it's like there is a snake um, wrapped around the child, and you have to kill the snake without trying to kill the child, and I thought about just what the Bible says about our enemies. And Paul saying, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. You know, it's against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what our battle is. And so how do we fight the battle against the right people when it seems to be so um, intertwined, you know? Why does God tell us 
to love our enemies. Uh, does God tell us to love our enemies? Because if, if we understood their side, what led them to it, then we wouldn't be so mad. Is it because they couldn't help it? No, that's not it. We all have a tremendous capacity for evil. And, and at times we're worth hating <laughs> because of that tremendous capacity for evil. And yet he loved us. Is it because, you know, whatever it is, it's not that bad. We're blowing it out of proportion. No, that's not it. We're not blowing it out of proportion. It's awful. Uh, we have utterly marred God's kingdom and his design for the world, and he had to send Jesus to the cross to fix it. It's, it's, it's a massive problem. Is it because does God want us to, not to, to hate our enemy because they're no worse than us, and he who is without sin should throw the first stone, and so none of it's a big deal? No, all of it's a big deal. All of it's a big deal. People are responsible for their actions. It is that bad, and sin has real consequences. It doesn't matter who is worse. It was bad enough that, Christ, that God had to send Christ to the cross to clean the whole thing up, right? It's bad. And so what do we do in the midst of that? How do we love our enemies in the way that Christ loved us? That starts, and it's in both those passages, with praying for your enemies, uh, praying for the people that you disagree with, praying for the people that persecute you, bringing them before the Lord. And it has to start there with bringing your desire for justice, with bringing your anger, with bringing your hurt, uh, with bringing your friends before the Lord and pleading with him. And we need him in this time and maybe in ways we've never needed him before. And so we need to be praying like we've never prayed before for the people around us that we perceive to be our enemies. Uh, that's what we need, and particularly as a church. Pray for your enemies. And stand for what is right without seeking to demean your enemy. I don't think it means backing down at all from what you think is right. But even with that, I'll say a few things. Man, base your right on what God's word says, not on what you think or what you feel, but on what God's word says, because whatever's right is in there, you know? And if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it, and I can help you find it. Um, but base your right on what God word, God, God's word says, and then stand up for it without demeaning your enemy. Listen to your enemy. Really listen. Listen to your enemy. Respond to their challenges with God's word, not your own um, but listen, I have a hard word in that. Your enemy bears the image of God because everyone, every human being is created in the image of God and so they bear that dignity and you're supposed to treat them like that. Beware of your own self-righteousness and your desire to virtue signal in this day. You know, that's a way to say I'm done with it or a way to feel better about yourself because you've gotten to a point where you've just written them off because they're just so stupid or they're so wrong or so whatever and God never gets to that point with us. Uh, and, and I don't think he lets us get to that point with the people around us. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And ask God for justice. Like, bring your desire for justice to the Lord. Paul says it in that passage, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, and that's where vengeance ultimately is going to come from, and that's who we need to seek it. He is going to bring justice to our world. Um, but that's his job, and he may use us as a part of that, but that's his job. And read the Psalms. You are not alone. They are constantly pleading in positions like we are in right now. Um, make no mistake, God is not being passive. God wants justice more than any of us. God, is, God has wrath. His wrath is real and it comes out of his love and he's furious. That's why Jesus asks God to take the cup away from him before he goes to the cross because the cup is God's wrath against all of this, against sin and evil and its consequences. And Jesus took it for us. God is not passive when it comes to this. Um, sometimes I think 
we, we can get a little dismissive of God and, and um, we want justice for everyone but God. But God is ultimately the one that is owed the most justice uh, because God is the one that cre has created this world and, and sin is the thing that is that has ultimately messed it up. We are not, not going to change the world by our strength. God is going to change the world by his strength. We are not going to change the world by our strength. God is going to change the world by his strength and his strength is shown um, in few ways as much as it is when we demonstrate the ability to love our enemy in times like this. We love because he first loved us. The only way we can love like that is by getting in touch with the way that he loved us. And then by the power of the spirit, we have some ability to love in a way that the world has never experienced love. And that's when the power of God shines through and that's when change is gonna happen. I know you're tired. I know you wanna give in to being on a side and demonizing the other side. We need the power of Christ like we've never needed it before. There was um, another little excerpt of this uh, book and she, so before all the things that we're going through right now with coronavirus and this latest, you know, um, ticking up of, of racial tension, which has been there forever, Me Too over the past few years has been one of the biggest things. And so she in here uh, mentions Rachel Den Hollander. And so Rachel Den Hollander is one of the women that was abused by Larry Nasser, who is the um, he was the, the physician for the gymnastics team at Michigan State University who abused, you know, it came out like 150 girls. And Rachel Den Hollander is the one that blew the whistle and got that whole thing going. And she faced him uh, at trial and she is just a rock solid believer in Jesus and gets this. And so it says in a moving speech at the trial of Larry Nasser, Rachel Den Hollander, the first woman to file sexual abuse charges against him, faced the man who took her innocence and pleaded with him to turn to Christ. The Bible, she explained, carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach that point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing, and that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Man, that is strength right there. That is a strength, and it's a strength that only comes from the Lord and would that we now in our time be able to demonstrate that strength that we would wish nothing but the grace of the gospel for the people that are our enemies in this day. Father, thanks for your words. Thanks that your words aren't, they're not easy for us. They're not easy. May we um, accept and respond to the challenge of your word this morning. May you convict us in the places in our hearts and in our minds, in our thoughts and in our words. Um, and in our, in our keystrokes on a keyboard, Lord, may we respond in the ways that we need to respond. May we have a deeper understanding of the grace that you have shown us through Christ. Lord, may we have conviction that we are called to love those around us the way that you have loved us. May we have the power of your spirit to do that because on our own, we are completely incapable of it. May we um, love those around us without giving up our pursuit of justice in these different issues, Lord, and may your strength shine out, shine through, and, and your glory be shown to the world around us, and may people come to you because of it. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.